Welcome to the fifth installment of The Pod Against America, our examination of the HBO series The Plot Against America, based on the Philip Roth novel of the same name. We're your hosts, Rob Nyer and Jim Baker, and this time around we'll be talking about part four of the series, which originally aired on March 30, 2020. Here's Jim Baker. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rob. Excited to get to it tonight. Are you really excited? I'm excited yes. too. I'm excited to have... This to, is the highlight of my week at this point. It, I, I would say roughly the same. I mean, I love doing my other podcast uh, as well, Sabercast. See, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't have another podcast, Rob. I, this is it for me. This is all I, I have. This one's a little more fun because there's no pressure. <laughs> I don't have, I'm not being paid for it. Uh, I don't have to, if I, if I, if I, if I feel like I screwed up during the podcast, I don't feel terribly guilty about it. Um, so it's just sort of pure, oh, I get to talk to Jim and we're going to let everybody else listen. Yeah, well, I am being paid because that's how you got me to do this. So <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on me. Well, I, I'm glad you're excited because, well, first let me ask, uh, let me ask how your, what your life is like uh, these days. Oh, it's uh, I'm adrift. <laughs> I achieve nothing. I do laundry regularly, and uh, you know hygiene. I'm I'm hitting about you know sixty percent of normal. Yes. So that's that's good. Uh, we are, we ran out of soap and stuff year, weeks ago, but um, <laughs> well, we are the, the 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 so far really the the only external positive. For us, is that we are getting tons of yard work done that we've been putting off for literally years, in some cases. So, so I feel good about that, and I really enjoy getting to spend so much more time with with the five year old. Um, that's great. But I, I was before um, before I called you or sent you the link for this. Um, I was think how just thinking to myself. If this goes on for another month, two months, how are the podcasters? Are they going to be able to sort of maintain that 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 cheery tone when they sign in? I mean, I've been listening to some podcasts lately, and people just seem so thrilled to be alive, which I get. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to be alive too, but but um, uh, I think that many of us are having more down moments than we usually do. So, and if you, I guess you just got to sort of ratchet up the energy level when you know you're going to do a podcast but it's not as easy as it used to be I i'd like to th i think i'm a basically optimistic person yes i think this will all turn out okay in the end uh i personally am in such a better position than most people that whatever inconveniences and job losses whatever i've had they pale in comparison to most people's right so i i don't even i don't even talk about it I'm mad at myself for not achieving more. This is this is the golden gift of time, and I'm <laughs> frittering it away. Yeah, well, there were a lot of jokes. I haven't seen them lately, but when when the lockdowns first started coming, there were a lot of jokes on Twitter of people saying, "Okay, no more excuses, kids. <laughs> You've been saying how you had all the, this. The the great American novel was just waiting to burst out of you, and and now you've got time. Exactly. Well, I mean. For me, on a personal level, I don't have more time because Olive's not going to daycare anymore. So I have less time now than I did before. And that's true of a lot of parents, especially parents with small children. Um, it's just 
the difference between being single right now and having small children is it's a universe apart in terms of getting work done. Well, I have no such excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Along those lines, I have some thoughts for you, but I'll share those after we're off because they have absolutely nothing to do with our personal lives or... um, or the podcast, or the, or the or the plot against America, but they do have something to do with with uh, some other fun stuff that uh, we can talk about later. But so, part four, uh, we you and I have a we basically decided not to talk about the episode or even really the podcast before we start recording, just so it it's it's spontaneous. But we had a brief little exchange, and it turned out we had the exact same sort of uh, mechanical reaction to part four which is that we didn't take nearly as many notes as we did in during part three and i was just wondering if you had any thoughts on why i think because it's so plot heavy that they're the characters are hurtling forward in their chosen paths that there are no new turns for the characters the characters are reinforcing who they were who who they've been established as right does that make sense it does but wouldn't i would think if, if you had asked me beforehand i would say if there's more plot i'll have more notes but maybe the the plot points simply speak for themselves so there's no reason to make a note is that sort of what you're getting at i think so i i, I think that's right uh, for me, this episode was much more about the emotional responses of the characters than any of the than any of the previous episodes. Right. It has the most emotional exchange yet, I believe, which is between Sandy and his father, where he calls them ghetto Jews. Well, and I would have said the one right after that was the most emotional, but that that whole scene. I mean, there there are a bunch of them. I mean, there's there's the two sisters going at it. Well, <laughs> that was rough. And then the, the the one with the father and 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 the rabbi. Well, and then when she slaps her slaps her son hard, mm-hmm. that's the one that killed me. Uh, and I mean, I know I've been raving about Zoe Kazan from basically the first moment of the series, but to me, if if you were going to, so far, if you were going to submit an episode for her emmy consideration this would be the episode i thought i mean she's been great in all of them but this showed another just another level of emotion and feeling and that 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 we hadn't seen yet i thought yeah i just liked his his arrogance and you know i was an arrogant 15 year old i'm sure many of our listeners were too because that's about the age you realize yeah i know it now I got to figure it out. Right. And these idiots who I have, who I have to live with. Right. Why can't and especially him, who, 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 this kid who's been elevated. And I, I love the part where where his mother says, I don't want him to get a swelled head. <laughs> she sees it's coming and she's doing everything she can to keep that from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he just dismisses his parents out of hand, right. you're this thing and that's all you'll ever be. Right. You know. It, it 15 was is the age, I think, where you know your parents are basically... They're in servant mode. They're you know they they did their job. They brought you into the world, and and now they're there to basically to serve you and uh, 
listen to you tell them that you've got it figured out. Yes, and if you need anything, they should supply it. Right. Otherwise, leave me the without hell asking any. Yeah, without asking for anything in return. Too. And I, I've, I've watched that scene twice now, and it took me the second viewing to realize why it made me so terribly uncomfortable. You could probably guess. It's because I recognize myself. Oh, in, in that character. Absolutely. And if you ever become self-aware enough to realize what a terrible person you were at that age, at least toward your parents, you probably are going to feel some level of guilt for the rest of your life. I certainly do. I and held my breath for years waiting for my daughters to treat me the way <laughs> that I treated my parents at that age, and they never did. <laughs> so that was a real, very big relief. And I said, wow, I really am a jerk. I really was a jerk. <laughs> I, turned out, I turned out great. It was just a bad patch, everyone. Uh, once I turned 19, I was fine. But <laughs> in between there. Well, it certainly is, is true that it doesn't happen to every teenager. So we don't really have that excuse. It, it mm -hmm. isn't, it isn't, we're not destined to be terrible people for three or four or five years. It just happens to a lot of us, especially, I suspect males. I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe females are just as bad. I don't know. I've never had a teenage daughter, but I was a teenaged boy. I had a teenage stepson and, uh, Generally speaking, we were both pretty awful toward our parents. So. Yeah, so you compound that with the the societal things that are going around him, just elevating. It just ratchets up the tension between them. I mean, their father's a ball of tension anyway, and, and deservedly so, rightfully so. And he's been plucked out of the masses to be this poster boy for this movement. And um, all of a sudden, he thinks, yeah, I'm it. I'm the one. I am the chosen one. Right. And one of the things that I think was so great about this episode is how it sort of slowly ratchets up the emotional tension as opposed to the, the, the action tension. I mean, you, it, obviously, it is plot driven, but we haven't seen any overt acts of violence yet. There were very few acts of, of uh, if any, of, of uh, prejudice um, against Jews in this episode. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but not like the previous episode when it was right out there. Right. This was all about the emotions of the characters as they realize, whether consciously or subconsciously, what's happening around them. And that's what happens in real life. When you start, when you start oppressing classes of people... Uh, it, get, it becomes internalized emotionally. And people have bad dreams. Children have terrible anxiety. Uh, I mean, all sorts of these things. And we're seeing it play out in front of us. Um, one thing, I know we both listen to the, the official podcast, the show's official podcast. And uh, David Simon talked about the look of the episode, which I didn't pick up on until the second time I watched it. But it's, everything is a bit darker. Oh. And as he said, there are things in people's ways. We just watched the uh, the Valhalla Murders, which is an Icelandic crime drama, and uh, I said, "Do they not have interior lighting in Iceland?" I mean, the whole show is in the pitch black, and so when I watched this episode, I said, "It's just like the it's just like the Valhalla Murders. Do they are they not turning lights on? Right? Is, is there is the utility on strike or something?" So you noticed while you were watching, I didn't. Oh yeah, yeah. 
uh, I, one of the things that that I, when I the first time I watch something, whether it's a movie, TV show, I, I typically don't pick up on a lot of technical things, and I certainly do more than I used to. But I've always felt that I was lucky because I could go to a movie, uh, and especially in a theater, and just sort of get lost, which is the whole point of the thing, right? Uh, much easier in a theater than when you're watching on TV, which uh, I think is something that whenever people say, oh, well, just, well, I'll just someday watch movies in our, in our houses. It'll be, it'll be just as good. No, it won't be as good because it's harder to get lost in the show, which means the show has to be a lot better to, to really hold you or to have a dramatic impact. And the best shows, of course, we've seen, how many great shows have we seen on television in the last 10, 15 years? They, were, they wouldn't have been any better, really, in a movie theater. Uh, not much better. Um, but when it's on TV, it has to be better. Or it won't hold, at least for me. Like, there are a lot of shows that I'm sure would be perfectly fine if, if the standards weren't so high. But, but uh, uh, it's got to be outstanding or it won't hold my interest. I agree. I much prefer the theatrical experience. But, you know, we, we move and we grow. We have to accept that a lot of the best stuff being done is on television and you have to adapt to that. Uh, I think the, you know, it's funny. The one, the one thing that that's nice about watching a movie on TV right now is that your standards actually are lower. I watched that. Um, Netflix has a new movie uh, loosely based on the Spencer character with, with Mark Wahlberg. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and it, if I had seen it in a theater, I would have demanded my money back at the end of it. I mean, it was preposterous. But you know what? It was on TV, and it was mildly amusing in parts, and Alan Arkin was great, of course. So, hey, okay. I didn't completely waste those last two hours. It was fine. It's always worth watching Alan Arkin. Yes. He uh, makes, he's one of those actors I say, do you make everything better that you're in? Yes. John Goodman makes everything that he's in better. Alan Arkin, everything he's in is better for him having been there. And uh, I... One of the things I love about watching him is that he's so great and he's so old. And here's why that matters to me. I figure if he can still be turning in tremendous award-worthy work at whatever he is, 82, 83, something like that, I got another 30-some years left of doing decent work. Right? There's no, there's no reason why you have to stop doing good work when you hit 70 or 80 or whatever it is. Right. I mean... That's what always heartened me when I when I went to see Flags of Our Fathers and, and Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, Clint Eastwood's doing this at, at an advanced age. Yes. There's still hope. Have you seen the Kaminsky method? I saw the first season. Did you not uh, like it enough to watch the second season? I just haven't done it. Uh, I'm, busy, I'm busy, you know. Yes. Tuesday night is garbage night. I understand. And I got to build up to that. There, and, I still have uh, not seen... Um, uh, there's a show that's... Uh, uh, Ozark. Three seasons now. I still haven't seen a single episode. I have seen all of that. And you recommend it, as I understand. Oh, absolutely. Marty Bird is the most, has the most stressful life of anyone on television. I'll just say that. Every time Marty Bird's phone rings, something awful has happened. Or he has to deal with a major crisis. And I don't know how he sleeps at night. I really don't. I don't know how he ever sleeps because this, all the things that he has going on have to run through his mind constantly. 
You know, it's funny. I after watching The Outsiders, now I want to watch Ozark less than I did before, because <laughs> I saw I saw Jason Bateman just put through the worst, absolute worst possible ringer for two, two and a half, three hours. And I really don't know if I need another whatever it is, 30 hours of that. So Jason Bateman in Ozark, he's basically the same character he was in Arrested Development. The the, the center of a a family in crisis. Except, and he's the one left, he's the one who has to hold it all together. Right. Uh, It's just the stakes are so much higher (laughs) in Ozark than they were in Arrested (laughs) Development. So... But if you've been to the Ozarks, don't go looking for the Ozarks. It's, I think it's not even filmed in Missouri. I believe, well, no, it isn't. I believe they filmed the pilot in the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. And when I was a young lad, I spent many, many a summer day in the Ozarks. Uh, and my father still lives there. He lives on Beaver Lake in Arkansas. So, um, so yeah, I was just there for a family reunion a couple summers ago. And, um it always takes me back, but no. With that, with episode two, as is the case with many shows, they went back to Georgia for the tax breaks, and so that's going to be a little, a little disconcerting. To it's like when you watch the X Files, uh, <laughs> especially the early seasons, when it's clear that every single episode, they're all over the map. They're all right. over America. Every state in America, there's an X File, and right. yet every single episode clearly. British is Columbia. Vancouver. British Columbia. Yeah, <laughs> right. there's the mountains are outside. Van- yeah, it's. I mean, it's preposterous. Um, Newark, New Jersey. That was my favorite. <laughs> Newark, New Jersey. I said, yeah, that's Newark. Uh, yeah. So, getting back to our show, um, you you did say as I told you, I had a, just a few notes. What, what was what's what's one of your notes? What do you want to talk about? Well, I, I just want to get back to to Sandy C- C- Caleb Mails. Uh, I think I'm saying his name right. Uh, puts in a great performance. He really stands out in this one. Yep. So kudos to him. And uh, Morgan Spector, still the rock of the show. Still his his intensity is just driving it all forward. Very impressed with him. Uh, that, that's some of my notes. Um, <laughs> I wrote here lots of Buicks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a member did, of the Buick Club of America. Did you know the story? Yes, I just said that in public. Because <laughs> and and uh, you know the ambulance that comes to take Mr. Wishnow away. Yes, Buick, a couple other Buicks driving around. So that excited me on a personal level. It was a Buick ambulance. Have you seen this the vehicle before? In another movie? No. Have no. you ever? Did you you knew that there was a there was a Buick ambulance? A uh, Buick. A lot of the professional car companies used Buick chassis, national and flexible, mm-hmm. and Meteor, to make ambulances and uh, hearses. And wait, how do you wait? I know how you know this. You're a member of the club and you're obsessed right. about such things. Yes, right. <laughs> I'm a member of many clubs, but I'm not obsessive about really any of them except baseball. Oh, I'm not. I'm not one of these people that can recite model numbers from memory. I, I've met those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're worse than me out there. <laughs> we can all say that, right? That's the alcoholic at the bar. You think <laughs> I drink a lot. You should see Steve down there at the end of the bar. He makes me look like a like a parson. Uh, I had a, one of my notes was 
<clears throat> I just wrote down Judah Benjamin. I don't think I, if I ever knew that story, I'd forgotten it. Did you, did you know about good old Judah Benjamin? Sure. And uh, there was a book that came out in 2000 called The Jewish Confederates by Robert Rosen. And I remember picking it up at Barnes & Noble and thinking, wow, this is fascinating. But I can't remember. I think the reason I didn't buy it was it was very, very expensive. I think it was $40 in, 19, in, in 2000. And, you know, that's like $60 now. And I, just, I just put it back, but I, I thought about it for a long time. That's fascinating. And um, Rabbi Bengelsdorf gets into all that. Right. He mentions, I, 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 I meant to go back and check. I could have sworn I could swear that that Benjamin was mentioned as having been the vice president, which he wasn't. He wasn't, but he he was really powerful. Oh, Secretary of War, and then he got yeah. he lost that job, and then was Secretary of State for the rest of the war, basically. Right. He he held it together. He held the, the you know the, the tenuous Confederate government together. It was a terrible government. Um, one of the problems was I. I I took a couple courses in college, and I remember one of them about it. And one of them said, one of the reasons that Jefferson Davis got to stay president was because they did not have any method for a reelection. <laughs> and if they had, he probably would have been voted out. I mean, he was not a great president. Was so. he voted in? Was there ever an election? Oh man, I forget. <laughs> no, there was not a general election. I think it was just sort of. I, I believe. Uh, see now, now you're calling me out in public, Rob. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even going to pretend. pretend. <laughs> well, I I did I did a, a little bit of research, which which means, of course, oh, you know the answer. You 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 ambush me. You no, know the answer. Different to that. question. Uh, oh. I did a little bit of research, um, which means I looked at Wikipedia for five minutes, and uh, just because I didn't know anything about Judah Benjamin, and apparently he and Jefferson Davis attempted to escape uh, at the war's end. Davis didn't make it. He was captured, but Benjamin did escape, made his way to England, and then became an incredibly successful, influential, wrote a book that's still a, a, considered a masterwork in, 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 as a barrister. Um, but the, 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 the funny thing was that he didn't really need to escape because I, apparently Jefferson Davis ultimately was completely pardoned and allowed to continue on his, with his merry way. Well, as I always say, that the, the Union won the war, but the Confederates won the Reconstruction. Right. So, and we're still feeling the effects of that. Yeah, you and I, not as much as most people, or not as much <laughs> as some people. Right. By we, I mean the collective we, the country. Yes. We, the country suffers for it still. How's that? Yes. No, we do. We yeah. do. Some more than others, but we certainly do as a country. Many of our broken systems are, 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 are due to not winning the peace. Right. I thought the, the conversation with Monty, his brother, was revealing where, as, as David Simon said on their podcast, Monty makes some good points. Yep. And what we as an audience in 2020 forget is that the America wasn't the world's policeman in 1940. You know, after World War II, if two seagulls were fighting over a French fry on a beach somewhere, they'd say, well, you know, America ought to get involved in that. and <laughs> Take part of the fry. Take take part of the fry and kill one of the send, seals. Send some marines over there and get that <laughs> sorted out. And it wasn't like that in 1940. And you know, Monty Monty represents that position. Well, also the position that if we want to continue living our lives, running businesses, uh, etc., we 
shouldn't say a whole lot. Right. And of course we, 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 that comes into stark relief when, when, when the FBI gets involved and it, 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 it occurred to me while watching this show, having just watched, um, um, God, why do I always forget the name of it? What's the, the, uh, the other, the show about the Nazis winning the war? Um, Man in the High Castle. The Man in the High Castle, yes. Why can't I remember? I have a mental block on that, on that title. But in The Man in the High Castle, one of the arch villains is, is, is Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> he goes right along with the Nazi program. He, he's thrilled. And one gets the impression in this uh, universe uh, under President Lindbergh that, that uh, Hoover's also happily going along. And guess what? In the real world, as you know, he happily went along with 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 Roosevelt's. Roosevelt was not a great civil libertarian in the late '30s and early '40s, uh, and uh, he was he was I think pleased to have Hoover do his bidding, and Hoover was happy to do it. Uh, and Hoover would would as long as Hoover would, could retain power, I don't think he cared who he who he who he worked for in all these different timelines and and different universes. And, and they always say that Hoover had a dossier on everyone, so you didn't cross him. Right. Um, now, wouldn't I? I was thinking about that today. Do you think it was? It was. Do you think people behaved more poorly in those days than they do now? Because maybe I'm naive, but I I, I have to. I, I sort of assume that there are some politicians, maybe not a lot, but some, who wouldn't have a dossier unless you invented it. Right, I can't picture Herbert Hoover with a dossier. <laughs> right. Or Calvin Coolidge, my God. Chews gum with his mouth open. I mean, that would be probably the worst thing that he did. Uh, <laughs> but certainly Warren Harding. Well, the truth, the truth is that yeah. a lot of those politicians had, were, were, had illicit romances. M probably the great majority of them. Would be my right, guess. and it wasn't it wasn't written about at the time. There's that that famous apocryphal story about Babe Ruth, where the writers are sitting on the the train car one night, and a, Babe Ruth ra ran through naked, and you know the door flies open, he runs in naked through the length of the car, and a moment later, a, a, a woman runs through wielding a knife, screaming at him, and they they run right through the car and out of it. And one of the writers says, "Boy, we'd have some story if she caught him." <laughs> right. And, you know, that that's always, to me, what the press was like back then, that they, they knew things and they just, just wasn't something you wrote about. Right. But it, it and I, I don't know anything about Hoover. I did see the movie, didn't really care for it much and have forgotten nearly all of it. But so I don't, I don't really understand why he was allowed to run amok for his, so many decades, basically forever until he died, essentially. Um, right. Uh, and I understand that he had dossiers and 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 all the dirt on different politicians, but you'd think that someone I mean for God's sake uh, Eisenhower Eisenhower put up with him yeah. he put up with him he could have yep. he could have stood up to Hoover I mean couldn't he have I would Truman. think he could have Truman could have stood up why couldn't him? Truman have I don't think I don't think he had a dossier on Truman worth a damn so why couldn't somebody and you know, my assumption is that they were all fundamentally so rapidly anti-communist that 
they just felt that whatever Hoover did was worth it if he would keep the Reds out of the government. That's the only thing I can figure because they knew who Hoover was. They knew right. he had so, more power so when, than he should. When Hoover would go after African American leaders, it was in the guise of, oh well they're Reds. Right. Anyone who, who promotes civil rights is a Red. Right. Um so I, I think I think if he couched it in those terms, uh he, he got away with it. But I mean, even Johnson and Kennedy, both now granted, I'm sure there were nice dossiers on those guys, but <laughs> they were both in favor of civil rights, and Eisenhower was to a, to a limited extent, but certainly Kennedy and Johnson were to a much greater degree, and yet they did essentially nothing to stop Hoover. Yes, uh, I started a book about Hoover, and I didn't finish it, so I shouldn't weigh in any further. <laughs> you I can't mean, know everything, Rob. I think that I think with Hoover. Reading a book about Hoover, first of all, if it's if it's well done, it's it's got to be seven hundred pages, and it's just one page after another of perfidy and 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 evil and persecution. And I, I don't. It's like I have this I have this eight hundred page book. Uh, it's a dual biography of Hitler and Stalin. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I have a. I don't want to spend a month reading about that. Yeah. What What do you need to know about Hitler and Stalin? Wow. These guys. These guys were terrible. <laughs> Finally on page 200. I get it now. They sucked. <laughs> I think I would really enjoy a one-hour lecture with the author. I think that would be a, 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 that would be great. Because I'm I sure would enjoy a, I would enjoy a CGI thing where the two of them beat each other to death <laughs> with boards with nails sticking out of them. Really, I know I know enough about those two now that I really don't need to take in any new information. <laughs> The only other note I have is um, I don't even know what why I wrote this down. Von Ribbentrop, Van, sorry, Von Ribbentrop. Trop. Trop. The way they say it, they, I never heard it said that way. You know, there's so many names that I've read in my life that I haven't heard them said out loud, and I've been saying them wrong in my head. Right. Uh, like when I used to say, um, Kiki Kyler, the baseball yeah. player. Right. And then Bill James explained to me, no, it's. Kai Kai Kyler. They called him that because he had a stutter. Right. So he was he was trying to say his own last name. My name's K Kai Kai Kyler. <laughs> so you know that kind of thing. So von Ribbentrop is actually the right way you say it. I didn't know that. I didn't. So, I and I yeah. still can't say it correctly. But I wrote I wrote down von Ribbentrop dance. I'm not sure why exactly. I think that was uh, the moment was somewhat intriguing. It made me wonder what was going through her mind and also oddly what was going through his mind. While that's happening, right? Uh, David Simon did an excellent job of explaining their Rabbi Bengelsdorf's motivation for going that to, to to show the Nazis that see in this country we're invited to the, to state dinners in your country you know we're, we're garbage and you're you're putting us in camps and exterminating exterminating us but here we sit at the hand the right hand of the president that was his motivation. It, it doesn't look good, but that was his motivation. It makes sense on some level. Uh, you know, do you tell him no? Do you have an international incident if you tell him no? Right. When he comes up to you and asks and you to dance? The, the Bengelsdorf character, and I think Simon talked about this, is a bit, he's a bit more interesting in the show than he is in the book. Um, he's, I, I think he's a bit more, you get, 
he, he gets to speak for himself in the show more than he does in the book. And you, I still haven't quite gotten the sense that he's an evil character. He's just almost certainly terribly misguided. Uh, doesn't really understand the world as well as we want him to. Uh, and I'm sure we'll find that out, right? That's got to be the next episode or the one after that. Um, I don't remember if he ever repents in the book, but uh, I would assume that something like that is, is coming. Well, there are people, you know, especially in a place like Vichy, France, where you know, this oppressor comes in and you have two choices. You can rebel and, you know, you blow up a, a, a truck full of Germans and they, they kill everyone, they kill 10 citizens for every German you've killed. Right. Or you can play ball with them. And, and then at the end of it, you can say, think how bad it would have been if I hadn't played ball with them. Yes, it seems like I was a collaborator, but actually I was helping my own people. And that's the rationale that they use. Um, what do you think about that? It's a horrible, I, I think about it, you know, I've been reading about this since I was 10 years old. It's a horrible position to be put in. Um, oh, speaking, of, speaking of books from World War II, my great fear when I read The Diary of Anne Frank, my great fear was that if I was ever in a position like that, I, the, the, the character I would relate to most is the uncle. Who steals food? <laughs> and his aunt says, <laughs> "His aunt says he's bigger. He needs more food." I feel like that right now. I feel like I'm I'm probably eating more food than my kids are here at the house. And I, I just it he's not the hero of the story, and I'm turning into him. It's terrible. <laughs> but where were we? Uh, <laughs> Binglesdorf's argument. Bengelsdorf argument. Uh, how do I feel about it? I, I've always felt like I hope I never put in that position where you have to choose. Right. You know, sometimes I think, oh, I, you know, I, I like order. I'm, I'm a law and order kind of guy. Would I would I be a fascist if this happened? But no, I have a rebellious streak. I, I don't want to be told what to do. And I have a, a great sense of injustice when it's being done. Uh, would I be a, a rebel? I don't know. We don't know until it happens. We don't. I think the only, in my mind, the only way that I turn into the rebel who fights back is if I'm angry enough and how can you can't know you'll be how angry you'll be until it happens right yeah and which which leads us to Alvy getting his leg blown off for it sounds like no good reason and uh, how frustrating that must be that you run away on this crusade and you train and you train and then when the big moment comes, you basically lose your leg over and, and you know, sh shooting a corpse. <laughs> so that, that's what ju just it just occurred to me. Uh, you just tied that to the previous episode. What did he say when he was asked why he wanted to join the Canadian Army? I want to kill Nazis. And how many does he kill? Zero. Correct. <laughs> he kills a corpse. <laughs> but think of how many men in World War II and every war train and train and you know you, you make 20 jumps out of an airplane and then the, the night of the invasion your plane gets shot down and you die and you never get into combat or you, you, you get a compound fracture when you land and, and have to be you never get to fire your gun it, it, well, it happened were, countless times there was a famous study i'm sure you're you're aware of it uh, a as i recall a small percentage of frontline troops actually fire their weapons at the enemy 
or I think it was fifteen percent or something. <laughs> really there, small. Yeah, it's a very small percentage of the of 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 infantrymen actually do the fighting and the killing. Um, most of them are just too scared to shoot or can't see the enemy, whatever it might be. All they're really doing is holding ground and hoping for the best. Providing a deterrent, a presence. Yeah. Most of the damage is done by artillery, mortars, uh, sickness, and the few guys who, who aren't too afraid to fight. That might be different now because, you know, you don't have a, you have a volunteer army and the training is better. They, they, they've, most of the guys fighting have been in, have been in for years rather than three months. I mean, you can imagine what it was like for these guys in World War II, and we've talked about this a million times, uh, and it's, it's not really polite to say this, but especially the soldiers who fought in Europe, they had it really easy compared to the Russians and the Germans who were going at it for four years, uh, nonstop, essentially. Um, but you know the, the the draftees, the U.S. draftees, they would they would go to basic training for two or three months, and they'd be shoved into the front lines. Some of them. We, would you expect them to be good soldiers? I wouldn't. Right. I mean, that's that's in you know another HBO show, Band of Brothers. I, I watched a couple scenes from that today, and uh, I still think it's the greatest thing ever, <laughs> uh, the greatest historical TV show ever. Uh, now they trained a long time because they were specialists. They were airborne, so they basically trained for two years before they went into combat. Right. Well, that's and, and that's what I thought about. I thought about that with Alvin. He it seems like he did only he trained for just a few months, and then he's some sort of commando off to do this specialized raid. And I didn't really buy that plot point. Uh, I'm going to forgive them that. I mean, they have to they have to compress time. They have to sure. move things along. Yep. Well, but again, they didn't have to make, as far as we know, they didn't have to make him a commando. Apparently that, that's going to come into play. His mission is actually going to be a plot point that shows up later in the show. Um, but he wasn't a commando in the book. He was just a, a, a grunt. Right. In the book, I wondered where he went. I just assumed North Africa. I don't think there are any Canadians in North Africa. Right. <laughs> and I could be wrong about that. I just don't ever remember them being mentioned. You know, they... The big show was Dieppe, right? The fiasco at Dieppe, where right. they lost thousands of Canadians in that ill-fated adventure. So, I just figured he bought it, got his lost his leg at Dieppe, and that was it. But it doesn't matter, you know. We're 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 bogging ourselves down in our field of interest, which yes. is a, you know a problem I have. <laughs> well, it, it hasn't kept me from enjoying the show. No. It, does, it, does it drop it from a 96 to a 95 or 90? Sure, but who cares? Right. Uh, and besides, general, we're, we're in an alternate history here. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, history has... We're now in, in uncharted territory. Now now the Germans are storming Stalingrad and the Russians don't have thousands of Studebaker trucks to bring supplies to the front. You know, the Americans not helping them. So it's, it's an alternate universe now. And... Did they? I don't. I would assume that in the book we never hear anything about the Eastern Front, do we? Yes. Yeah, they're having trouble with the Soviets. I remember. I think that's the, in the, the book. Germans are. Yeah. So why would they have trouble with the Soviets if they're if the Soviets aren't getting any 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 uh, trucks or 
air cobras or anything else from the from America? I think are, we gonna, biggest... are we? Are you and I going to have to come up with an entire alternate history <laughs> for the Eastern Front? Because I can do. We can do that. Right. I think. I think obviously the first phase of Barbarossa would bog down just like it did. Because we weren't helping them then, were we? I mean, lend lease applied to. I guess we started lend lease with with the Russians, with the Soviets after they were invaded, just like we did with the English. Right, but it would have taken a. a Right. Long while for all the trucks and airplanes. You know, people don't realize, most people don't know how many trucks we sent, jeeps, airplanes, lots of, of P-39 air cobras for one thing, many other things. There was a whole system that moved airplanes across the U.S., uh, through Alaska, through Siberia, all the way to the Eastern Front. So those things were all happening. I don't think they would have had any real impact in the summer of 1941. No. So I, I think we can assume that 1941 would have gone pretty much the way it did. And probably early 42 as well. And the the, the show, the, so far we're, we're still in the, the summer or fall of 41, right? No, we're in we're into 1942 now. We are? Oh, I missed that yes. card. I thought the card at the beginning said something like September 41, but maybe that was the previous episode. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on the Eastern Front. <laughs> Even if nobody else is. Right. What else did you have on this episode? Any other notes? We got through all of mine. Um, I want, Ruffle you know, paper. Ruffle paper. Let's see. And, uh, I'm going to ruffle here. some paper too. Okay. Oh, Henry Ford. Yes. So, that dude looked like Henry Ford. Yep. <laughs> and this will depress you because Henry Ford was pushing 80 at the time of that. That guy is your age. Ed Moran, the actor, is your really? age. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't look 80 in the show. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's the polarizing figure, to say the least. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean... Uh, I think I mentioned this to you after we recorded last week, um, but I listened to a, a podcast that's recorded, I think regularly, I've, I've only listened to one episode, by some of Lindbergh's descendants, and they <clears throat> they were not happy about the show being made, although they wound up toward the end. I might send it to you so you can listen to it and we can talk about it sometime, but they wound up at allowing for the fact that maybe we can all learn something from this and we can have a constructive dialogue. and But... <clears throat> Uh, one of the things that a defender of Lindbergh has to, I think, grapple with is just how friendly he was with Ford. Granted, he wasn't the only one. You know, Henry Ford was a was a was an American. He wasn't Lindbergh, but he was, in, to some degree, a, an American hero, and he was a despicable human being. Right, and you know they, the cabal. You know, there's that that newsreel footage of Ford and and Edison. Camping? Have you ever seen that footage? Sure. Yep. There's a new yeah. book about it. And uh, you know, Edison was an sob too. So <laughs> for different reasons, he was just a thief. And that was his his big thing. Um, they they didn't tell us about that at the tours of Menlo Park when I was a kid. Believe me. Uh, <laughs> and here's where here's where he stole. Here's where he kept the stolen patents. I have not been to the Menlo Park Museum, but I have been to the. There's a massive Ford 
museum uh, in in near Detroit, which right. is one of those places that has you know two of every single thing you've ever heard of, um, including I think that's where you can see Edison's last breath. Do you know about that? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, see, we have Henry Ford to thank for that, and I'm always I'm always puzzled with these people. Okay, so he did this. He gave his workers five dollars a day, which was a great leap forward. And then he did this thing over here. And then he did this. It's like MacArthur, General MacArthur. So he was a great governor of Japan, but he did, you know, he overstepped his bounds in the Korean War. He's one of these people that goes back and forth with with columns of pros and cons. Uh, ultimately, you're not going to like Henry Ford because, uh, you know, at his core, he's an, obviously an awful human being. Right. You don't, you don't get a value judgment Anything other than that, if you go out of your way to publish a newspaper spewing hate for a group, you're just in the awful category just by doing that. <laughs> right. Regardless of what else you've done. And it's okay and, to and, mention the other things. Right. Deerfield Village is great. I, I want to go there before I die. And I'm grateful that he did that. But I'm not going to go pat his statue on the head and say, thanks, Henry. You... <laughs> <laughs> You anti-Semitic bastard. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so. So what do you, what, what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts about what's next? We got a little, a little hint. I don't know. You're not one of those people who refuses to watch the, the coming attractions for a TV show. Are you? I would be, if I hadn't read the book, mm -hmm. I would, would not watch it. I do watch the coming attractions for curse of Oak Island a show. I've seen every episode of to my, probably to my shame. I don't know. I just want to see what they're pulling out of the ground next week. Right. Um, you know, we've got two episodes left. One of them's going to be very, very bad. It's dark as it is right now. It's going to be like like this one is. Didn't we talk about Mad Max? The, the first. This is the first Mad Max movie. Yeah. Next week is the second one. And uh, hopefully, we'll get re redemption in the final episode. Here's the thing: there, there are only two more, right? Correct. Now. And maybe this was held back. I'm sort of hoping that it was. But the previews for next week's episode, as I recall, displayed zero physical ugliness. No Molotov cocktails thrown through plate glass windows. Uh, no thugs on the streets beating the hell out of Jews. I, I didn't see any of that. The whole episode, all we've all we're basically told about the next episode is there is going to be some, I don't know if it actually happens or not, but, but there's a relocation program, which will send our heroes to where is it? West Virginia, Kentucky, someplace like that. All over the Midwest. Well, no, right. our heroes. Oh the yes. We're following. Yeah. Um, but if that's all that next week is next, the next episode, that would save all the ugliness, the physical ugliness for the last episode, which wouldn't leave a lot of room for, what we assume is a relatively happy conclusion. So I almost wonder if they held back the ugliness that will be in the next episode, just to give us something to be surprised by when we watch. Look, D David Simon is going to do the best job there is in interpreting this. So he might make a choice where the book has a different end. It has a different ending than the book entirely that we don't know what's going to happen in the last episode. I'm going to go out on a limb here 
And I, I think maybe it, when we're finished, we could talk about David Simon's body of work. Although I'm handicapped because I have not seen the entire body, not even close. I've never watched a single episode of The Deuce. I think I saw one Treme. I never saw Generation Kill. And I only saw the last episode of The Wire. Um, so I really can't speak about his work with any real authority. Um, I, I will say, though, oddly, the one show that I have watched obsessively of his is probably maybe his least popular or least well-known show, which is Show Me a Hero, which I thought was a uh, masterpiece. Well, he he says in the podcast that he, what drove him to do this project right now is the current state of events. Right. So if this is a parable about what we're going through right now, then aren't all bets off for the end? Y y well, yes. On the other hand, we don't know what the end of our current state of events is. So it isn't as if he could base the end on what what our what's what's on our world. We don't have a conclusion yet. So I guess what I'm getting at is, is it more effective to have an unhappy ending, or is it more effective to have an happy ending? Here's our way out of this. Right. And I'm going to show you what it is. Right. In this alternate universe of 1941. <clears throat> I. That's a really good question. Um, I think you have a better chance of getting a show made and financed and promoted by HBO if you show us a way out. But you're right. Who knows? All bets are off. I, I think that... Um, uh, I think that I'm really pleased that he dropped the hint at some point, I can't remember where it was, that he, ch he changed the ending. I don't know how much he changed it, but we know it's going to be somewhat different than the book, which was, as we've talked about, unsatisfying. It was the only unsatisfying thing for me in the entire book was 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 the, the mechanism. Right, and I think we should it. talk about that next week when, when, they, when that happens in the show, where, right. where Roth changes the, the narrative. Where Roth changes the narrative? Yes. Where, where, where Roth changes the tone of the narrative. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Um, I agree. And I think uh, I, I'm way overdue, but I, at the very least, I think I'll read the, the, the conclusion of the book so we can have a... Right. I've, I've been rereading the part where... He ch and for people who haven't read the book, basically what happens is it, it, st it starts reading like a totally different book, like with a different, a different voice, a different narrator. And... It's a little unsettling. So I, I'm very excited to see what Simon does with that that transition. Has, has how many of his other shows have you seen? And does this does does this show make you want to go back and watch the ones you haven't seen? Yes, uh, you know The Wire. You know, saw every episode. I watched a lot of The Deuce. And uh, I've never seen Generation Kill. I probably should see that. So no, I'm not. A, I'm not a, a completist. Did you ever watch? I mean, I've been a. I would. I until I w just ran through the list of his shows, I would have described myself as a David Simon fan. Mm -hmm. I don't really think I'm qualified to say that, given how little of his work I've actually seen. 
but I was a huge obsessive fan of um, Homicide way back when. Did you ever watch that? Yes, I watched quite a bit of Homicide. And it was great. It was it was very different than what else was on TV at the time. I, I was just thinking about that a couple days ago because I saw somebody posted on Twitter this amazing 30, 45 second clip from Brooklyn Nine-Nine mm-hmm. with Andre Brar. And he was playing it, this this little bit was played fully in a fully dramatic way. It was just like something out of Homicide, which was what, 25 years ago, roughly? Right. Uh, he hasn't, he's gotten beefier, but otherwise he, he looks exactly the same. And it reminded me that his career could have gone in a completely different direction because he is a truly gr- great dramatic actor. And yet, and I don't fault him for this whatsoever, he spent the last eight years on a sitcom. <laughs> and he's fantastic. He's great in that job. Right. Well, I, I always say that the the best comic acting is when you don't know. They, they don't telegraph that they're doing comic acting. Play it straight. The laughs will come. Right. So I'm not surprised he could pull that off. And you have to give a ton of credit to Michael Schur and the people who made who, who put Brooklyn Nine-Nine together for for seeing this guy and saying, oh, wow, this amazing dramatic actor, he's perfect for this silly little piece of comedy that we're putting together. Yeah. Well, you got to anchor it somehow, right? Right. But he's he's just, I mean, I I don't watch that show religiously just because um, I don't even know where on the streaming services I would find it. But when I do watch it, uh, I, I laugh my ass off every time. It's so funny. Uh, Brar and Sandberg and, and, and all the other people are just great. Yeah, I should probably crank it from the beginning. I'm, I'm almost done watching the entire run of 30 Rock again. Mm-hmm. And so I've been laughing uproariously for two weeks. Uh, have you... I, I don't think we've ever talked about this. I just started... I just started... Um, I watched all the early episodes obsessively when they were on, the night they were on, and I've just... They just added community to netflix and i it has utterly held up it is as funny now as it was when 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 i watched it 10 years eight or 10 years ago yeah i i watched uh i'd never seen season six the one that was on yahoo i think uh-huh yahoo's four way four into television i'd never seen that before i watched that last month how was it it was great i have not seen right. so i stopped watching when he left uh or, or when he was fired um and they did one season without him i think and then he yeah. came back later and did, did a season, and I have not seen that season, so that makes me really happy that it's worth seeing. Yeah, it's on Hulu. That'll be all new for me. Yeah. Well, you want to get, get, get us out of here, buddy? Okay. So this concludes Episode 5 of the seven-part series, The Pod Against America. Our music is Johnny Dresden's Teutonic-tinged version of Telstar, the Joe Meek penned hit of 1962. Join us, Jim Baker and Rob Nyer, next week for episode six. Thanks, buddy. Take care. See ya.